It's good to be back. Uh, me and Michelle and Jessica all got a year older last week, and we had a ton of other people in our family that had birthdays too. So we went out and celebrated with our family, which we haven't seen much since we moved, and it was really fun. But it's good to be back. But I found myself wandering around this morning thinking, man, I haven't seen you in a long time, and I haven't seen you. In, I felt like I hadn't seen anybody in a long time. So it is good to be back. This morning we are going to be looking at James chapter four, verse one through twelve. So if you have your Bibles, open them up. And we are going to be talking about conquering conflict. Hey, wouldn't that be nice if you could just deal with that and put that out of your life once and for all? That would be nice. But that's going to be a challenge uh, based on some of the things that we're going to read this morning from the book of James. However, we are going to have a path to get where the Lord wants us to be. And um, when you think about conflict, it's not all bad. There are certain kinds of conflict that are good. Like I think about my friends that I love, we have a close relationship with, and we might have a difference of perspective on a biblical issue. And so we might have conflict over that. But conflict is actually just a fun discussion where you sit down with a friend and you just say, well, what do you believe? Why do you believe it? You study scripture, you look at it, and, and people point out what they think are weaknesses, and you point out what you think are weaknesses. And in the end of it, everybody's better, and everybody has a better perspective. And there are times that I've adjusted some of my views because of good friends and conflicts that we've had over those. And there are other people that I know that have adjusted their views. I'll never forget in my preaching class, one of my favorite teachers, um, we had like a little doctrinal conflict. And I just said, well, that's not what it says in, if you look at the original language, that's not what it says. And so he grabbed a Greek Bible, he opened it up, he looked at it and he goes, you're right. I mean, it totally like shocked me. I was like, okay, that was not what I was expecting. But sometimes those kinds of conflicts are good. But there's another kind of conflict that is not good. And those are personal conflicts, animosity, when you don't like a person, when you're having difficulties, and there's just personal conflicts. There are certain kinds of conflicts that are not good, and those are the kind of conflicts that we're going to be talking about this morning. And James is going to tell us where those things come from. Have you ever... Um, thought about how some of those silly conflicts, how ridiculous they are. Like I, I think about who are the people, when you think about this, who are the people that you have conflicts with most? And in some ways, I would say, I know I think about this for myself, it's the people closest to you. It's the people that really, if you think about it, your relationship with them should be the best and the most encouraging. People that are in some senses the most committed to each other are sometimes the people that you can have conflicts with. Let's think through a list of who some of those people are. And just, I want you to make sure that you're thinking about the right conflicts in your life as we're going through this. But have you thought about your marriage? You ever have conflicts with people that you're married to? I, I remember kids in youth group that would be fighting with their, okay, would I just say something weird? What? People that you're married to. Well, that would really create a problem. I learned something new in church today. The person that you're married to. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, see, see how that good conflict works, straightening out some of my, my thinking. 
you know, you think about this. God gives you the perfect helpmate for yourself. And, and, and if, you're, if you're the man in the relationship, you're supposed to be the leader, and God's provided this person to encourage you and support you and help you. And it's like you both love each other. You're headed the same direction. If things go well for one spouse, they're going well for the other. It's like, how could things not just always be good? And yet, we have some really intense personal conflicts. Why does that happen? I mean, it's ridiculous. That should never happen. What about kids and parents? Kids and parents ever have conflicts? When you think about it, it's like you have a kid, you love this kid, you make all kinds of sacrifices for them. Every, all of your resources, I think about how much kids cost and the kind of sacrifices that parents make for their kids, and their goal is to see their kids do well in life. I've never met a parent that thinks, you know, I hope my kids flunk out of school and get in a car accident on the way somewhere. And it's like every parent wants what is in their kids' best interests. And kids should love and appreciate their parents. And they should really enjoy that love and that care. And yet there can be so much conflict. Have you ever gone on a family vacation? Hey, let's get away from all the stress and the pressure in life and let's just have a go, go have a good time together. And so your purpose is to enjoy each other and get a break from life and have some fun. And yet what happens on these family vacations? People get in such fights, they're like, why'd we even come here? And they can't wait to get home and go back to the rest of their life that they were trying to get away from. How does that happen and why does that happen? And James is going to explain that to us, and he's going to explain a way out of it. And so as we consider that this morning, um, we know that being a Christian requires that we are committed to the Lord, and that we, and, and that, that by itself will bring some kinds of conflicts with people. If you're saying, I'm committed to honoring the Lord, but there are so many conflicts that that's not where they come from. And so um, the three steps to conquering conflict in your life is number one, to think about where does it come from? Why is this happening? And if you don't understand that part correctly, it's hard to fix the problem. Now the second part is actually something like when you're reading through this passage, it definitely goes together, the whole thing, verse one through verse 12, but there's this middle section that almost seems like it doesn't fit. And that's the, actually the, the center of it, and I would say a very important part is that we need to love God more than we love the world. Or, an, or in another way, to not be materialistic. And in some ways, that seems like a different thing, but it's actually not. Because what's the greatest commandment in the Bible? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And why do we love our neighbors? Because our neighbors are made in God's image. And if we love God, then we love people because they're made in his image. And so loving people is just a way, it's another way of loving God. And that's cool. That means that you use your Bible on your phone. You're listening to it. That's awesome. <laughs> hey, if, if, you're bi if your phone ever starts reading your Bible in church, that's fine. <laughs> that's probably better than what I have to say this morning anyway. But if you really love God correctly, 
then that's going to actually inform every other relationship you have. And sometimes people view church as, hey, I want to go and I want to be a better person and I want my kids to go to church so that they can be a better person. And, and we think about these external things in our life without realizing that actually church is about knowing and loving God. And if you know and love God correctly, it actually solves every other problem you have in your life. And so some people view church as like a self-help thing when the reality is, yes, we're helped, but that's actually a side benefit of knowing our God and creator and being in submission to him. And then the, the third point, so number one, figure out where the problem comes from. Number two, love God more than you love the world or you love yourself. And number three is don't be judgmental toward other people. And so we're going to look at that this morning in James, and it is so good. Now, one of the things that I think about with James is he is so passionate about these things. And one of the things that you see in James, James wants people to know that they're really believers, and then he wants them to actually live like a believer. And I just think about why is that? And it's because James grew up as a religious Jewish person following the Old Testament, but he was not a believer. He did not know God. And the reason we know he wasn't a believer and he didn't know God is because he rejected Jesus during Jesus' life. He thought Jesus was like his crazy older brother. And at one point, the whole family gets together to go rescue Jesus because he's making a fool out of himself and making a fool out of the family. And so James knows all these things. He's been disregarding all the things that Jesus taught him as a, as a kid, growing up with his older brother. And finally, he comes to understand it, and he sees how much he was missing it. And now he's so passionate for everybody to know what Jesus was teaching and, and to really genuinely follow Jesus. And so that's, I love James, and that's why James sounds actually so much like Jesus. So let's look at the first thing is this. How do we resolve conflict? It's James chapter four, verse one, and the first half of chapter two. You gotta identify where does a problem come from? And so here we go. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? How would you answer that? It's because I'm around a bunch of knuckleheaded people. <laughs> they do all these really dumb things. It's hard to soar with the eagles when you're, okay, never mind. <laughs> What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. And so when we take a step back, we got to recognize that we have conflicts with people because we are so self-centered. We want what we want, and we demand that we have it. So now think about this. Every time you get in a fight with anybody, what is it that you wanted that you didn't get? And sometimes that can be peace and quiet to be left alone. So another way to say that is, are you getting something that you don't want? And what really causes these quarrels and conflicts in us is that we don't get what we want or we get something we don't want. It's all about us. Um, and, and we are so committed to having what we want. So quarrels and conflicts, that, that, those two words are put together and they actually cover all the range of different conflicts that you can have. Um, that war, 
military conflicts, uh, conflicts where you kill people, wars with words. I mean, it, it covers every type of conflict. It's a state of hostility and antagonism. You know, sometimes you could describe family relationships that way, church relationships. You ever see people in church get in fights with each other? Have you ever seen conflict in church? And you just think, how can that be? Church is a bunch of people who love the Lord and love each other, and their purpose is to care for each other. And, and it's like, and yet we sit and fight with each other? Why does that happen? Well, it's because we take ourselves with us to church. So what are passions and desires? So this word for passions that we see here in this passage is actually pleasures and enjoyments. Some of the Bible translations translate it that way. We want to be happy. We are committed to being happy. We're committed to having things that we want. Um, desires, that's this strong, intense lust, a craving. It's the word that we get hedonism from. Coveting is something that you just set your heart on. You see it, you want it, and you are going to get it. I think about that word covet. You remember um, when God told Israel, when we destroyed Jericho, don't take anything, and, and Achan goes in there and he says, I saw it and I coveted it and I took it and I buried it in my tent. Hey, God said, don't have this. It's not good for you. It'll bring dishonor to me. And Achan said, yeah, actually, I don't care because that looks pretty good and I want that. See, that's coveting. It's this internal desire. Now, what I think is interesting in this passage is that it says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? See, it actually, this actually starts inside of us. And one of the reasons that we know that James has in mind Christians when he's talking about these things, obviously some people who are not believers, but actually unbelievers don't have war, a war within themselves. That's actually only believers who have this war within themselves. Because if you're an unbeliever, you're a slave to sin, you're broken, you're committed to having what you want, you don't really care what's right or what God says, um, you are a slave to sin. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes into you, gives you a new nature, makes you spiritually alive. And now you actually desire to please the Lord, except Romans chapter 7 describes how we're still stuck with this sinful flesh. So we have a new heart, we have a new spiritual desire, but we still have this sinful flesh. And you remember my illustration a few weeks ago about the two dogs, and whichever one you, you uh, feed the most is the one who wins? And so you'll have to go through and listen to the whole, all my sermons from the past if you want to get the rest of that story. But we have this war within ourselves. Um, Peter talks about this. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners. So we're to see ourselves not as earthly people, but as heavenly people still living on earth. To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Your fleshly passions, and James talks about how temptation comes from within us. Those things are trying to destroy your soul. Galatians 5.17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. See, we all are sinful. We all have desires. I will be treated the way I want to be treated. I will have the things that I want to have. Like we have that, but God gives us a new nature to say no to those things. 
to do what Philippians 2 says, not just to look out for yourself, but to look out for other people. See, that's what happens when you're transformed as a believer. And so that's what happens. And so you can't obtain and you, you fight. Now, does it seem extreme that he throws murder in there? Uh, how many of you have killed somebody for not giving you what you wanted? Like it seems kind of like an extreme example. But I want to go out there and say it's actually not that extreme. You know, Jesus equates anger and murder. And, and I think sometimes, um, like I know, I actually know people, I have friends who have killed people. And a lot of times people don't recognize how fine the line is between letting your temper go, between hating somebody, and then actually killing them. And there are people who let themselves go and they just think, oh, I would never kill anybody, but I do hate people and I'm angry and I do let my temper get the best of me and then one day somebody's dead. And so there's actually a very close connection and Jesus actually says it's a hard issue and if you're anger and if you have bitterness toward other people, then in your heart that's like murder. And there's some people that are standing on the edge of a cliff the way they live and they just don't realize how close they are to falling off. Well, um, let's think about this more. How about King David? Like you read King David's life. He's this faithful guy all through his young life. And then he ends up having an affair and murdering somebody to cover it up. You know, I'll just tell you there, um, if, if you go to like statistically, think about like the abortions that happen in the United States. Um, I have a friend who runs a pregnancy center and she told me, that 70% of her clients, people considering abortion, come from Christian churches. You wouldn't necessarily expect that, but there's so much pressure, shame. Um, I got pregnant and I wasn't married and you can't tell anybody and there's all kinds of things that happen. Like I've, I've heard all kinds of things about somebody had a baby out of wedlock, should we have a baby shower for them? And there's all kinds of things where you have people that just in this moment, they're so intensely overwhelmed and they just feel like, I'll do anything to cover this up. And in some ways, there's a lot of people who are just like King David, this man after the Lord's own heart, who kills somebody to cover something up. And so um, that's, and by the way, that's a whole nother topic for how the church ought to respond to people that are struggling with sin. You shouldn't think, I'd be better off killing my kid than facing people at church. That is not what should be happening. And so as we think about this, um, there's a pastor of a, of a really large church that recently was fired for misusing money and some other character issues. And now I read a news article this week that he's being investigated for trying to hire somebody, try to find somebody to kill someone. And so we read this whole thing about murder and we think, oh man, that's so extreme. No, it's not extreme. When you live your life in a way that says, I will have what I want, um, how far will that go? How far will that take you? And sometimes fighting, if you get in family fights on your family vacation, that should worry you. Because if I'm willing to ruin a vacation over this, where else could I go? So it's pretty intense. Now, I was thinking about murders in the United States, and I should move to my next point, but I, I do want to tell you this. 
You know, there's 47 people a day that get killed in the United States. 47 times in our country, somebody says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill somebody. It happens five times every day in California. In L.A. County, where I just moved from, there's three people every two days that get killed. In Orange County, it's three people every two weeks. So we're better off. And then the other thing is, when I moved here, there was this debate about whether I should live in Mission Viejo or Rancho Santa Margarita. <laughs> and everybody said, don't go across the bridge. Nobody lives over there in Mission Viejo. You guys should have done your research because you might have been able to convince me because in, Miss, in Mission Viejo, in the last two years, one person got killed. So I don't know. That's a pretty safe city. Rancho Santa Margarita. In the last seven years, nobody's been killed. <laughs> I don't mean nobody's been killed. I mean nobody's been murdered. So you are safer in Rancho Santa Margarita. And nobody gave me that sales pitch for moving in. I might have thought twice. Hey, we need to think about our passions and them not taking control of us. And then this is actually the most important part. That's an important thing to diagnose it correctly, but, but to solve this problem really comes down to, do you, love the, do you love God or do you love the world? Like, where do your affections lie? Who is it that you're committed to serving? Because if life's about you, who knows where that will go? If life is all about God, that reinforms everything that you do. So let's actually just read this, and there are some other things in here that are really good, so we're going to dig into these. But the second thing is this, we need to love God instead of the world. James 4, 2, so he says that you're coveting and you're killing people to get what you want. And then Jesus, James actually says something here that God said to David after he killed Uriah. Do you remember when David kills Uriah and God says to him, hey, if you wanted more, all you had to do is ask. I love you. You're my kid. I give you all the stuff you asked for. All you had to do is ask. Instead, you kill somebody to get something. Well, this is what James, God says to us. You don't have because you don't ask. That's about a relationship with the Lord, and it's just like saying, I'm here to get stuff for myself. Instead of saying, God, you own everything, and you're the one who provides everything, and whatever I want, I'm going to pray for. Now, <laughs> you, you think David would have gone to God and said, hey, God, um, that lady over there married to somebody else, uh, can you give her to me? You think David could have brought himself to pray that kind of prayer? No way. And I think a lot of times the reason that we're distant from God and the reason that we don't ask for things is because there are things that we know God would hate, but we want them. He says you don't have because you don't ask, and you do ask, when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And then he says you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? So James starts by just saying you need to love God. He needs to be the one that you're committed to. And you don't have because you don't ask. And when you ask, you ask with these sinful motives, trying to gratify your flesh. And so really, 
conflict in our life, whenever you have it, it comes down to the fact that you have misplaced affections. You love yourself. You don't love God. Now bring that into the next vacation fight, the next time you fight with your spouse, sit there in the car and you guys yell at each other, or you guys do, I'm sure I don't, but, but uh, other people we've heard of do that kind of thing. And um, no, I mean, we all struggle with this, don't we? And so he just says, your, your affections are misplaced. It's interesting how God c- compares his relationship with people, how he compares it with marriage. In fact, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, when you read about that passage on marriage, it's saying what husbands are supposed to do, what wives are supposed to do. It describes marriage. And then at the very end, it says, this mystery is great. And people are going, yeah, marriage, wow, that's, that's a great mystery. He says, no, I'm talking about the relationship between Jesus and the church. Marriage is a picture of the relationship that we have with Jesus. In Revelation, there's the marriage supper of the Lamb when all the believers eat with Jesus, and as believers, we are a gift that God has given to Jesus. That's why he holds on to us and he keeps us. It's like this marriage relationship, and God all through the Old Testament talks about, he compares unfaithfulness, spiritual unfaithfulness as adultery. And so God loves us, and when we love the world and those kinds of things, we're being unfaithful. Now think about how you feel, how a person would be hurt, if their spouse was unfaithful, and then think about, that's what you do. Every time you love the world instead of loving God, every time you want things instead of wanting God, any time you love your stuff more than you love the person who's given it to you, that's spiritual adultery, and that's what James says here. You adulteresses. Don't you know you can't be God's friend and the friend of the world? Those things are incompatible. So we see that. Uh, James cha- or 1 John 2.15 says this, Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You know, we all hear that story. Remember that guy comes to Jesus and he says, hey, I keep all the commandments. What do I need to do to be saved? And then Jesus says, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the guy goes away sad. And then he says, it's easier to get a rich uh, camel through the eye of a needle than a rich person into heaven. And what do we all comfort ourselves with? Hey, you just have to be willing to give up your stuff, but you don't actually have to do it. We can keep our stuff and still be Christians, but we got to be willing to do it. And it's like we comfort ourselves with that because the reality is we don't want to give up our stuff. But it says don't love the, th- the world or the things in the world. And if you do, the love of the Father is not in you. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do you realize that that was the whole debate going on between Satan and God about Job? Satan says, yeah, Job loves you, but he only loves you because of all the stuff you give him. If you take away his stuff, he'll curse you to your face. And God says, nope, actually, Job loves me. So he takes away all his stuff. He takes away all his family except his wife, she's left to encourage him to do what's wrong. (laughs) 
takes away everything. And what does Job do? He falls on the ground and he says, naked I came from my mother's room, naked I'll return, blessed be the name of the Lord. Have you ever thought about sometimes you lose things, sometimes you go through difficulty, sometimes you go through struggles, and it's God pulling things back to say, do you love me? You know, Hebrews says, be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. The reason you can be content with whatever you have is because you have Jesus. And so if you have Jesus, it doesn't matter what you don't have. You have everything. And if you don't have Jesus, it doesn't matter what you have. You have nothing. And so when our affections are placed properly, man, nothing in life can shake us. And um, I love, one of the things I love about James is he gives us these little measures and tests so that we can evaluate ourselves and see how we're doing. Now, I would prefer that God not kill all my kids and take all my stuff. Uh, I'm thankful for the tests of what happens when I go on vacation. Okay, I can measure my heart that way. What happens in my relationships with people that are supposed to be close to me? Because I'll just tell you, maybe it's less severe, maybe it's less significant, but it's actually the same kind of a test because it tells you where your heart is. And so that's what's happening here. Now, there's another factor in this. We know temptation comes from ourselves, but temptation also comes from Satan. And if you think about this, that's Satan's goal. He wants you fighting with the people that you're supposed to love. He wants to drive wedges in people. He wants church to be a place you don't like to come because you're mad at somebody who sits on the other side of the room. Uh, your parents are supposed to love you and care for you, and Satan wants you fighting with them because they'll benefit you, encourage you, help you, and your life's going to be better off. And if he can drive a wedge, that's a good thing. And in marriage, God's given you each other to be a support, to be an encouragement, so that no matter what difficulty you face, you don't have to face it alone. There's somebody to love you, help you, encourage you, be there with you, and Satan doesn't want that for you. And so the thing you got to know is that Satan and his demons, they've been practicing for a long time. And they could just kind of sit back and go, check this out. They're on their way to church. Hey, let's have something go wrong. And that way they'll fight on the way to church, be mad at each other. They won't be listening to the preaching. And think about all, don't you wonder sometimes the timing of the fights you have, the conflicts that you have? Don't you wonder how did that happen? Man, that was perfect timing. That was kind of random. And then you realize actually we're in a spiritual battle and Satan's manipulating us through those things. And that's what James dumps right into the middle of this passage. Isn't that weird? I'm, well, okay, it's not weird. Look at this. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. See, Satan's in the middle of all this conflict. And if we submit to God, which is to say, no, I put other people's needs first, well, then Satan's traps don't work. You're supposed to forgive people who wrong you. No, I'm going to hold bitterness. I'm going to punish them for what they did to me. No, forgive them actually. Because if you obey God, if you submit to God and you do the things that God tells you to do, none of Satan's traps work. You don't have to be in some spiritual position where you're recognizing everything and seeing everything and knowing everything. All you have to do is obey. There's a bigger picture that we don't see, a spiritual battle. There are things going on that we don't understand. 
but you don't actually have to understand. You just need to know this is what God says I'm supposed to do and then just do it and then none of Satan's traps work on you. And that's what he says. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee. And then I, I love this next one, verse 8. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Now, that's pretty amazing. That's forgiveness. That's repentance. But I want to just ask you this whole thing of resisting Satan. So somebody was laughing at me for putting up the Book of Mormon in church. So this morning, you get an extra bonus. We're going to put up some of the Book of Satan, so the Satanic Bible. We're going to throw that up on the screen. So <clears throat> the Bible has Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, right? Jesus summarizes them all in the New Testament with love God and love others, and that doesn't mean we disregard everything God says and only come up with our own weird definition of love. No, if you love God, then you actually do all the things that the Bible says. So the Satanic Bible opens with nine Satanic statements, and it's amazing how similar these statements are to the philosophy of life that people have. So here's the first one. You think, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's the greatest commandment in the Bible. So what's the greatest commandment in the Satanic Bible? Love Satan with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or maybe it's hate God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. No, it's this. Indulgence, not abstinence. Nothing is to be gained by denying oneself pleasure. See, that's Satanism. So if you know people that say, hey, look, it makes me happy. I'm going to do it. Well, my this person I care about, well, I just have one question for you. Does it make you happy? Well, you're just saying, are you a Satanist? Th this is the indulgence, not abstinence. Um, there's a, there, there are a bunch I was going to put up here, but I didn't have time. But here's number four. Kindness to those who deserve it, not la love wasted on ingrates. See, the Bible says love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you. Satanism says love people who love you and hate people who don't love you. Um, one of the other commandments is um, vengeance. Take vengeance on your enemies. Don't let people get away with things. Or they'll just, you know, be nice to people who are nice to you. Be mean to people who are not mean to you. Okay, I didn't put it up there, but I said it anyway. But number four, it's unproductive to waste your energy on people who will not appreciate or reciprocate your kindness. That's Satanism. You ever heard anybody function or think that way? Um, celebrating the so-called sins is number eight. Satan champions the so-called sins as they lead to physical, mental, or emotional gratification. See, that's what makes people such pawns in Satan's hands. Because this is what he preaches. This comes natural to us. It's kind of what we want to do. And God says, let me help you avoid every, let me help you avoid Satan's plan for your life. Do these things. And the next time you're going to have a silly conflict with somebody, remember this verse. Ephesians 6, 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And if we keep these things in mind, the next time somebody does something that really makes you mad, you'll remember, remember no, this is Satan's plan. God's intention is for me to love and encourage and help that person. My kids, I want their well-being. I don't want to fight with them and bicker with them. My spouse, I'm supposed to love them and forgive them and be kind to them and not fight with them. 
And the church should be the most loving and encouraging place where we're on each other's side. We are for each other. Hey, God is for us. How can we not be for each other? And yet you'll find people in churches where they get together in groups and they're kind of against people. Oh, wait, no, that's the next point. But here's, I I don't want to miss this one um, as we consider this. Um, It says this. Draw near to God and he will draw near to, to you. What an amazing promise that God, that this is forgiveness, this is repentance. When you come to God, he comes near to you. It is never too late. There's nothing you've done wrong that you can't run to God. That's one of the things Satan wants is he wants you to run away from God when you mess up instead of running to God. And I think we need to take a cue from that in the church. When people blow it and people mess up, they should be able to run to us. They shouldn't feel like they should run away. And so to think about, that's an interesting balance. Because we are also people of truth. We, we do want to tell people the truth. We're willing to say things that people not li- might not like to hear because it's what God says. But we need to be the kind of people that, we, that people can run to. And then it says this, repentance. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Do you love God or do you love the world? Stop doing that. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. So you got people who just say, I want pleasure. And, and James is saying, no, when you're sinful, when you love the world, when you've been an adulterer to God, that should break your heart. You should mourn. You should grieve. There are so many people that say the biggest problem people have is guilt. If we could just get rid of guilt, they wouldn't be so depressed. I know people that have been involved in ongoing sin and then they go get antidepressants and then they feel better about their sinful life it's like no grieve be brokenhearted turn away from sin repent and that's what he's saying to do here guilt's not the biggest problem it's that we are guilty sometimes about the wrong things we're not guilty about the right things and then when we are guilty we don't know how to deal with that which is to run to god and to repent and to ask for forgiveness. And verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now let's look at the third thing. Our third thing that's important, our third step is don't be judgmental toward other people. Don't be judgmental. Look at this in verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you are the judge, but if you are the judge, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. Um, what does it mean to be judgmental? Um, yeah, people throw that around all the time. Hey, don't judge me. And, and we'll just say, if we say what God says about things, everybody says you're judgmental. No, I make my own rules. I decide what's right and wrong. No, actually you don't. God's the one who decides what's right and wrong, and it is not judgmental for us to say what God says. Uh, having an, ad- committing adultery, that's wrong. <laughs> to go back to the earlier part of our service, as you all correctly identified, to be married to multiple people, that's wrong. And it's not being judgmental for us to say what God says. And when you're in a personal relationship with somebody, to talk to them and to affirm the things that Scripture says and to point them to God and to say, no, God's actually in charge. He calls the shots. He says what's right and wrong, and this is what he says is wrong, and this is what he says is right. 
And with all love, it doesn't actually matter what you think. God's the one who decides. That's not judgmental. I mean, we can do that in a judgmental way, but that's not judgmental. Judgmental is when we're critical toward other people. When, when you look at somebody and you scrutinize them and you question everything they do and you act like you know their motives and you're fault-finding. And that can be if, if you know, I, I got to try to think of some illustrations here that nobody will think I'm talking about them. Can we just start with, if, if I've talked to you about anything recently, I do not have you in mind. <laughs> but sometimes we can be hard on people who um, don't struggle with things we struggle with, like maybe I'm always on time, but then somebody shows up late, and we can be hard on them for that. Um, sometimes um, people, people may struggle in a, in a certain area, and it's like we judge their motives and we don't understand what happened. Like maybe you're going through something hard and you thought, you know, where are my friends? How come they didn't call me? You know, I'm going through this really hard time, and these are bad people. They didn't love me. They didn't care about me. They didn't call me. They didn't check in on me. And we start, oh, man, they don't really love me. And so now you're hard on people for not reaching out to you the way you wanted them to reach out to you. See, that's being judgmental. Uh, maybe if you were in their situation, the same thing would have happened to you. Maybe you wouldn't have called because you had some emergency in your life. Or, I, you know, there's a lot of sometimes people quit coming to church and they say, nobody reached out to me and to checked on me to find out where I was. And it's like sometimes people get frustrated by that. In fact, somebody was just sharing how much they appreciate this church because people actually check on them when they're not here. I think that's a great thing. But sometimes we're hard and we're critical toward other people and situations that we don't even fully understand. And we judge other people as though they report to us. And that's how James wraps this all up as he says this. Verse 12, there is one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? You know, God sorts everything out. He's the one who corrects what's wrong. He's the one that affirms what's right. He's the one that blesses people or punishes people. That's God's job. It's our job to just love everybody, to forgive everybody, to encourage everybody, to be kind to everyone, to return good for evil. That's what God's called us to do, not to scrutinize other people and be hard on them, not to be critical, not to be judgmental. And you know this, that you're doing this when you get around with people and talk bad about someone else. Point out their flaws. You notice how so-and-so always does this? And, and sometimes we do that. That's being critical and judgmental, and that's not what we should do. I love Romans chapter 14. We're going to close with this. Romans 14, 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? See, we just remember that actually all, everybody is God's servant. It's not our place to judge them. It's his place, God's place. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So when you lie, that person's headed nowhere fast. No, actually, if they're a Christian, God's going to get them where they need to be. If you blow it, if you've messed up, God will get you where you need to be. You are God's servant. Quit worrying about what everybody else thinks and please the Lord. And we need to quit acting like other people serve us. They serve the Lord. And so I love this. If we put these things into practice, we'll quit having all kinds of 
dumb conflicts. We'll love each other in the church. You know, Satan loves to distract people. If the church loves each other and works together, they'll reach the lost. If all they do is fight with each other, they accomplish nothing. So let's close. Lord, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for the way that you love us. Thank you for this path. God, help us to love you and that, Lord, we would stop following our passions, that we would be able to take a step back, see ourselves for what really is going on in our life. Lord, help us to own those things. And Lord, I am just so thankful that we can always run back to you. Help us to be people of repentance. In your name, amen.